Welcome to History Zine number 8. I want to apologise for the delay in getting this one out to you. Lots of work and social stuff getting in the way, most frustrating. So, welcome to the show. Lots of good stuff today. War of the Spanish Succession, we're doing 1703. Linguistic history trivia bit, we're doing the word cabal. And we have a review from Anne, that's Anne is a man who will be reviewing the missing link. I want to say a quick thank you to HarperCollins, who have been kind enough to send me Richard Holmes' new book. That's Marlborough, England's Fragile Genius. I'm looking forward to reading that, and we'll bring you a review next time. And now my linguistic history trivia bit. There's a, there's a word that I've encountered a few times lately, mainly because it's uh, quite closely connected with this period that we've been covering. Well, its later meaning is, certainly its original meaning is cabal from the word Kabbalah, which is the name for the mystical translation of the Hebrew scriptures. But the way we use the term cabal now came from 1670. Now, you may remember from a few episodes ago, I mentioned the Treaty of Dover. This is a secret treaty that Charles II had made with Louis of France. And in this treaty, Louis promised to provide Charles with with money. And Charles was looking to be able to free himself from his dependence upon Parliament. Louis also promised a force of troops. And the idea was that Charles would be able to use these to help subjugate troublesome elements in England and convert England once more to Roman Catholicism. Also, Charles was expected to abandon the Triple Alliance with Sweden and the Dutch Republic and instead switch to Louis' side and help him to conquer the Dutch Republic. This is back in 1670, a few years before the start of these wars of Spanish succession. Now, news of this treaty did leak out, and it became somewhat infamous. But, what does it have to do with the word cabal, you might be saying? Well, there's a group of English ministers that were involved in putting together this treaty, and that were involved in the negotiations with France. Now, the five ministers involved in this were called Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley, Lauderdale. And what does that spell? That's right, spells cabal. And so that's where we get the sort of more modern meaning of it. That's the meaning of it being a secret conspiracy. And it's a kind of a derogatory meaning, usually a cabal. You're referring to a group of people that are plotting something that you disagree with. So there you are. Cabal, a group of five ministers involved in that dastardly Treaty of Dover, 1670. So now, our special guest reviewer, Anne is a man. Over to you. Hello, listeners to History Scene Podcast. This is Anne from the blog anneisaman.blogspot.com. This blog is all about podcasts. Every day I review at least one podcast. Many among those are history podcasts. Jim has asked me to give a review here for you on the show. Well, here's my shot at making a little bit of a podcast myself. Hurrah! Go for it, Anne. Podcast away. The Europeans did not arrive in South Africa until the 16th century. And then it took until the 18th and 19th century until they 
began to actually settle the land. Until then, they were mostly sticking into the cities like Cape Town, which served as a harbor unto the uh, Indies. But it is in the 18th and the 19th century that mostly Dutch and German colonials settle in the land and start their farms. And then they meet and get to know a lot better their neighbors, the Xhosa, the Zulu, and the Botswana. And they themselves are farmers. That is, they are pastoral nomads, but they have huge herds of cattle. And then the Europeans do an amazing observation. You know, these farmers from the Netherlands, from Germany, they have huge herds. Their herds are maybe 400 cattle strong. The Xhosa, the Zulu, and the Botswana have similar size herds. Well, when you have a herd this size and one cow or one calf goes missing, how do you notice? Well, the Europeans count. They count one, two, three, two, four hundred. Yes, all are there. The Xhosa, Zulu, and Botswana were capable of immediately telling that one of the cattle was missing. But if they were asked how many cattle they had, they were not capable of telling that. It turned out that they didn't count, but they knew each and every animal individually. This is a very wonderful story that I've heard on a podcast that is called The Missing Link Podcast. And this podcast is about the history of science. And in this particular uh, story, the host, Elizabeth Green Musselman from the University of Northwest Texas, continues to explain how the Europeans dealt with this strange observation and try to explain this. And of course, this gives some insight, not just in the history of South Africa, of colonialism, about of the culture clash. This is also in the history of our knowledge, and in our case, a very quantifiable approach. It is a wonderful podcast. It is a very, very intellectually exciting podcast. And if I have any criticism, then it is because... This podcast is not structured. We have eight episodes by now, and we've been talking about counting. We've been talking about numbers. We've been talking about animals that were used in laboratories. And a new series has started about the conflict between evolution theory and creationist theory. And it's very, very fascinating to see that she's going to dig into that history. Another good point about this uh, podcast that sometimes doesn't work out too well is that she invites guests to lecture on the on the show. And among them are students of hers, and they're not always that good. And she doesn't treat them with the kind of respect that she would treat a colleague. So, for example, in the last podcast, uh, two students give us an essay about the development of the scientific method. And this is very, very much structured around, let's say, the Popperian view of scientific method and the biography of Karl Popper. Well, our host, Musselman, she reveals to us that she doesn't agree with uh, Popper herself or not with this approach of the scientific method or the history of scientific method. She says that, and that's it. She doesn't tell 
what is her criticism. But this is the introduction to the essay. So this is a little bit patronizing it and gives a bad start for this essay. But this is only a slip. And otherwise, this is just a very, very fascinating podcast, not just from the standpoint of history, but also uh, from an intellectual or philosophical perspective. And that is what I like. What I like in history podcasts is not just to get the facts, but also to get some analysis to understand. Because, hey, ultimately, this is why we're interested in history, because we want to understand better the world that we live in. Well, thank you for listening. I hope that you like this. I hope that you will come by uh, at my website. The blog has reviewed more than 100 podcasts, many of them history podcasts, but also psychology, geography, philosophy, science. And I am confident that anybody who comes there uh, will find something that he likes. And, and then I'll be glad to have been of service. So come by, pass the word. And for now, listen to Jim Mowat and enjoy more stories about the Spanish War of Succession. And we shall indeed. Lots more on the Spanish succession today. I'd just like to say thank you to Anne for that review. I always enjoy listening to Anne's reviews. He really thinks a lot about what the podcast he's trying to achieve and what he wants from that podcast. And I'm not the only one who thinks highly of Anne's podcast reviews. I noticed that Dan Carling of Dan Carling's Hardcore History had popped in there to say how much he valued reading Anne's view of the podcast. Because as a podcaster, often you can get just too close to your own material and it's nice seeing somebody's view from the outside every now and again just to get another perspective on how it's perceived. And so, the War of the Spanish Succession. Now, today, we're going to do quite a difficult year. This is 1703. And the reason 1703 is quite a difficult year is because there isn't much that is absolutely decisive happens in 1703 but it's also an important year and it's an important year because it leads us to 1704 and as many of you will know 1704 is the battle of blenheim probably the single most important battle in this war but we've got to find out how we get there from here so so firstly just a general overview of the war of the spanish succession for those who haven't heard the earlier episodes the War of the Spanish Succession is 1701 till about 1715. The combatants are France and Spain on one side and the Austrian Empire, England and the Dutch Republic on the other side. I mean, those aren't the only combatants. I mean, we'll, we'll have Baden, we'll have Bavaria, there's Piedmont, there's Munster, there's Hungary, there's Portugal, there's Savoy and there's the bishoprics you'll find in Western Germany. But to get that easy sort of general focus, you're looking really at the Dutch Republic, England, the Austrian Empire on one side, France and Spain on the other side. The line of Habsburg kings in Spain has died out, and the Spanish crown has been bequeathed to the nephew of Louis XIV. Louis and his nephew have accepted this bequest, despite previously assuring the rest of Europe that they wouldn't. The French have grabbed back some of the fortresses in the Spanish Netherlands, which had been in Dutch hands. The Austrians also have a claim to the Spanish throne that they're pursuing, and that's through the Austrian Habsburg family. So, what's this war about in general? It's about 
The expansion of France, worrying their neighbours. It's about the Austrian Empire trying to hang on to its power. It's about the Dutch worried about this powerful neighbour France right on their doorstep, threatening their lines of defence. And it's about England, as ever, worried about the balance of power in Europe, knowing that if one country gets an inordinate amount of power in Europe, then England itself will be threatened. It's what came to be known in later centuries as the Great Game. Right, so let's get stuck into 1703. And... Mostly, it's bad news for the Allies in 1703. The Allies being the Dutch Republic, England and the Austrian Empire. And even the good news has a bad side to it. One piece of good news we get in 1703 is that England and the Dutch Republic managed to convince Portugal to enter the war. Which is great news in many respects. It gives a great base to launch attacks into Spain. And it also gives a great naval base... So you can control the Mediterranean, so you can launch attacks on southern France, or you can support the empire fighting in northern Italy. The bad side to this deal is that it had a very high price indeed. The Portuguese had insisted that if they entered this war, there could be no end to the war until the current king, now Philip V of Spain, the Duc d'Anjou, was removed and replaced by the Archduke Charles. As we're going to see a little bit later... This request actually prolonged the war by about four years and widened the aims of the war quite considerably. Now, I want to talk to you about Marlborough's great design. Now, it didn't work. It didn't come off. But I think it's important to have a look at why it didn't work and what he was trying to do. So, let's have a look at what he was trying to do. Firstly, to draw the scene, where's it taking place? It's taking place in modern-day Belgium, then the Spanish Netherlands, and Marlborough is, of course, looking for his great field battle. He feels this is the way to achieve something decisive in this war. Here, in Flanders, in the Spanish Netherlands, he knows he has the biggest concentration of Allied forces. In northern Italy, Prince Eugene is greatly outnumbered. The Margrave of Baden is being heavily pushed in what is now Germany. The only force capable of doing something really decisive against the French forces is the Allied force in the Spanish Netherlands. And doing something decisive here will cause Louis to pull troops away from northern Italy, away from Germany, back into the Spanish Netherlands, and that will relieve the pressure over there. Now he knows he's not going to get permission to do this from the Dutch deputies. They are more than a little worried that Marlborough is going to throw away their entire defensive force. So they keep him on a very short reign indeed. However, he puts together a plan that will exert forces in different areas to draw the enemy out. It's kind of like you do it in chess in that you will attempt to manoeuvre your opponent into such a position that they'll find their only moves are to lose one piece or another piece. Marlborough wants to threaten two of the most important ports in the area. These are Ostend and Antwerp. These are also important for England. In that, if they could capture these two ports, then English troops and supplies no longer need to go through the Dutch Republic, but can be brought straight into the Spanish Netherlands. Of course, the Dutch are none too keen on this, partly because... They want to retain control of the troops and supplies coming through to the armies. 
and partly because if these ports fell into English hands, then after the war, where England and the Dutch Republic become trade competitors once more, the English would have a strong advantage holding these two ports. So they managed to dissuade Marlborough from this to start with and persuade him to lay siege to the town of Bonn. And there are delays after delays after delays. Were I a cynical man, I might presume that there were elements in the Dutch government that helped to perpetrate and prolong these delays. I'll read you a little bit here from Marlborough that showed how frustrated he was getting over the delays. Since my arrival here yesterday, I have had a good deal of spleen. For instead of finding everything ready, there is none of the boats with then ammunition and cannon yet come. So that Monsieur Cohorn had proposed to me to let the siege alone till the end of the year. You know, in my opinion, I was never fond of this siege. It has now made so much noise that I think it will be scandalous to avoid the making it now. So that I have given the orders for the investing of it next Wednesday, in the hopes that most things will be come by that time. The next part of the letter makes reference to a personal tragedy in Marlborough's life, that of the death of his son only recently. Both parents were still grieving over the death of their 16-year-old son from smallpox, that was in late 1702, and they wrote of him often to share their grief. Anyway, going on with the letter, I have this day seen a great procession, and the thought how pleased Lord Churchill would have been with such a sight has added very much to my uneasiness. Since it has pleased God to take him, I do wish from my soul I would think less of him. The news is so ill from Germany that I am afraid we will make a very scurvy end of this campaign, especially if we should be so unhappy as to meet with great difficulty in this siege. So, I shall come to that ill news from Germany later on, but for now, let's follow Marlborough through this campaign and see where it goes. Those cannons he mentioned did eventually arrive, and it was a very impressive artillery. There were 90 large mortars, 500 smaller mortars, and over 500 guns pounding the wall day after day after day. So, Bonn stoutly defended though it was, was quickly pounded into submission and it capitulated on the 15th of May, 1703. While this was going on, the French are looking to counter this action and kind of divert the Allies, maybe draw them away. They decided upon a siege on Liège and making their way to Liège, the French generals Villeroy and Boufflet spotted a much more tempting prize in a branch of the Allied army led by Oerkirk, or in anglicised version, Overkirk. They vastly outnumbered him and quickly moved to attack this Allied army at Tongres. A Dutch and Scottish battalion held off the entire French army for 24 hours, so giving time for Overkirk to take up an entrenched position under the walls of Maastricht and for Marlborough to reinforce that army. The French did eventually arrive upon the scene there, but seeing the change in circumstance, seeing how well entrenched Overkirk was now, they deemed it wisest to withdraw back to their own lines. So now, Marlborough's taken Bonn, and he feels free to put his great design into operation. He instructed Cohern to lay siege to the city of Ostend, 
This would hopefully draw troops away from Antwerp. Then the generals Opdam and Spa would each strike against Antwerp from different directions. In the meantime, Marlborough would be facing off against the main French army, so they would feel they couldn't go to help either town without actually confronting him in an open battle. Now, that's all a little bit sort of complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of push-pull forces going on there, and the complication involved is its main weakness. When trying to keep control of an army of so many disparate elements, really, you've got to keep it much simpler than this. However, it is quite a beautiful plan. And I think if it had had the kind of control that, say, Napoleon had, then he could have made it work. Because there was a, there was a significant garrison in Antwerp, and not much of a garrison in Ostend. So if you attack Ostend first, hopefully the garrison from Antwerp will come out to Ostend, or at least part of it, and then you've split those troops. And then you can hit Antwerp with a hammer blow from both sides. And hopefully, with a depleted garrison, it should fall quickly. And Ostend, if it's only been sent part of the garrison, that would fall quickly too. Whatever happens, you're almost certainly going to come out of it with either Ostend or Antwerp. However, Cohorn, the Dutch siege expert, who was supposed to be besieging Ostend decided he wanted to do something else, and he got permission from The Hague to go on a pillaging mission instead. Now, it's in the same sort of area, and he could make a case for it possibly still doing its job of drawing garrison troops out of Antwerp in an attempt to stop his forces pillaging. But this is not going to work. It's not as vital as, say, an attack on Ostend would have been. And the French garrison commander in Antwerp just completely ignored it. And so, the plan fails at the first hurdle. There's going to be no splitting of troops. And so there's still going to be a decent force centred in Antwerp. Marlborough heard what happened, and obviously wasn't pleased. He immediately sent messages to The Hague to try and get permission either to attack the main French force or to get them to insist upon Cohorn besieging Ostend. But no such approval for either course of action was given. And then things just got worse. General Opdam, he was supposed to wait for forces to be drawn out of Antwerp before he moved. But of course no forces were drawn out. But he carried on with the plan nevertheless. So we've got a position now where Marlborough's facing the lines of Brabant, Cohorn has gone off pillaging, and General Opdam is parading about in front of Antwerp, just more than a little exposed. Villeroy hears about this, and immediately sends off Boufflet with cavalry and grenadiers, with orders to pass through Antwerp and sally out upon the forces of Opdam. This they do, joined with forces from the garrison of Antwerp, and Opdam soon finds himself facing a superior force and completely surrounded. Opdam, believing all is lost, flees the field. He sends off two letters, one to Marlborough and one to The Hague, telling them he's been defeated and his army is lost. The letter to Marlborough is captured by the French, but the letter to The Hague actually does reach its destination, and they immediately swing into action, looking to create a new front before Bergen op Zoom and sending emissaries off to Germany to raise more mercenaries to replace some of those soldiers that they believe has been lost under Orpdam. 
But what was really happening back there at Antwerp? Well, it seems maybe General Opdam had possibly been a little too pessimistic in his summary of events, and also maybe just a little too eager to launch into headlong flight. The Dutch actually gave a really stout defence against these overwhelming odds. They were, they were led by Jacob Hopp, Treasurer of the Republic, and General Slangenberg. They put up a tremendous resistance and managed to cut their way out through the cavalry that surrounded them and escaped to safety at Lilo in good order. The Dutch had fought so stoutly that at first the French thought that they had lost the battle, but once they found themselves in possession of the field, they lost no time in proclaiming a great victory. And this together with the letter they had from Opdam gave them a great propaganda coup. In the Dutch Republic, the news that the army had escaped was greeted with much relief, and Slangenberg was received as a saviour and a hero. Unfortunately for Marlborough, Slangenberg used this wave of public acclaim to complain bitterly of foreign generals, leaving them exposed and of not coming to help. Fortunately, Marlborough's status at The Hague was strong enough and the accusations ludicrous enough that his words were not as damaging as he might have hoped. The common citizenry may have been convinced, but the soldiers and the policymakers took little notice of his outbursts. So the damage to the Allied armies was not as disastrous as it might have first seemed, but it was now quite certain that Marlborough's great design for 1703 would certainly not take place. He made another advance against the main French army, but they retreated back behind their fortifications, and so Marlborough had to satisfy himself with the siege and capture of a couple of minor fortresses, these being Huy and Limburg. And so in the Low Countries where the vast majority of the Allied armies were concentrated. Few gains were made. Elsewhere, the Austrian Empire was coming under serious pressure. The main threat was from the Elector of Bavaria, who had managed to connect up with the French forces and could mount an attack upon the heart of the Empire, Vienna itself, with a good chance of success. That connecting up there was the bad news that Marlborough mentioned earlier. From the other side, Austria was threatened by rebel forces in Hungary. The Empire had many troops stationed in Hungary, protecting it from Muslim invading forces. Now the Muslim threat had been driven back, the Empire took over the government of Hungary and began exacting payment for those forces involved in its protection. This was never going to be popular. But what made it even more unpopular is that traditionally the Hungarian nobility, the Magar, were exempt from taxes. But the Empire insisted that everyone should pay. And so, very shortly, an army was raised in Hungary to resist the Austrian impositions and, backed by French money, it became very powerful and very effective indeed. Unfortunately, the Austrians couldn't expect a great deal of sympathy from the rest of the Allies over this issue. The Dutch Republic and England saw this issue as something of an irrelevant sideshow. They felt that the Austrians should make a settlement with Hungary so they could concentrate their efforts upon France and Spain. Austria felt differently and many harsh words were exchanged between the Allies at this time. So that's 1703. We've got Austria being pressed from both sides, from Bavaria and from Hungary. We've got Marlborough's great design having failed in the Low Countries. Portugal has joined in the war. And there was another little bit of good news for the Allies. That's the Duchy of Savoy-Piedmont. This is only a small state, but it has a vitally strategic position. 
It controls the Alpine passes, that's access to the Italian states from the rest of Europe. And it actually made quite significant amounts of money controlling and maintaining these passes and taxing any goods that went through them. However, of course, everybody else knows that this is an advantageous position. Everybody knows this is quite easy money, really. And so it's always a a delicate balancing act, playing one of the great powers off against the other, because they all actually want this chunk of land. They all actually want the benefit of being able to tax goods going across the Alpine passes. So the Dukes of Savoy were past masters at this game of high intrigue. During recent years, they'd actually been siding with France, and they'd gained a great deal in subsidies from France, and they'd made quite a number of advantageous marriages cementing this relationship with France. However, the current Duke, Victor Amadeus, was looking towards the maritime powers and seeing that they were strong and rich and that Prince Eugene had won a number of victories in the Italian peninsula. All these things begin to make France a little less attractive as an ally. But he tries, he presses his ally for more money and asks for some maybe prize pieces of the Spanish Empire. Specifically, he's looking for Mantuan Montferrat and Milan but he receives little response to these overtures, and so looks towards the alliance of the maritime powers and the empire. Now, of course, he has to be very careful in these negotiations, because present in the Duchy of Savoy is a very strong French army under the General Vendôme. Now, General Vendôme is is already suspicious. He, He reckons Victor Amadeus is passing sensitive information to the Allies, and he seeks permission from his king to disarm the Piedmontese army and garrison the fortresses if he should need to do so. This permission is given. And not too much later, he gets the chance to exercise these powers, and this is as a result of a particularly appalling diplomatic slip by a guy called Richard Hill, envoy extraordinary to the Duke of Savoy. Now, the way this story is told is that Richard Hill... He's quite young, English, gentleman, diplomat. Seems to have assumed that the Comte de la Tour has already been included in the negotiations about Victor Amadeus and the Allies. And he's talking to the Comte de la Tour and talks of all these things that have been discussed about Victor Amadeus possibly coming over to the side of the Allies. And of course, the Comte de la Tour immediately reports back everything that he's heard. And General Vendôme disarms the troops of the duchy and demands the surrender of the fortresses. Victor Amadeus, on discovering this, immediately ceases to bargain and throws himself into the arms of the alliance, siding with them wholly and without reserve. Now, this makes me wonder. Victor Amadeus had been messing about for quite some time. He was deemed completely unscrupulous, and so maybe they considered he needed a good push. To my mind, I cannot believe that young and experienced though Richard Hill was, that he could have been so foolish as to believe that he could say these things to the French Count and not have it passed on. I think this was done on purpose to drive Victor Amadeus into the arms of the Allies. And so now Savoy is part of the Great Alliance, which is great in that Savoy is in a wonderful strategic position but bad in that Savoy is quite weak now. Bad in that many of the fortresses in Savoy have been taken over by French troops, and 
bad in that it gives you yet a wider area to try and defend. And so we're coming to the end of 1703. And we've got a horrible situation for Austria, threatened on both sides from Hungary and from Bavaria. We've got Savoy Piedmont has switched to the side of the Allies. Portugal has switched to the side of the Allies. Bavaria has switched to the side of the Spanish and French crowns. Marlborough has been frustrated once more. And there are many letters from him this winter where he's begging to be relieved of the command of the armies. Marlborough in the winter of 1703 is angry he's frustrated he knows what he wants to do he knows he won't be allowed to do it and frankly he wants nothing more to do with the overall command of the armies however being the resourceful chap that he is he is going to find a way and in 1704 marlborough will make his mark on europe and his mark on history i'll see you next time for the war of the spanish succession and 1704 bye for now